electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, the last straw. Social media companies blocking President Trump from posting to his accounts after a mob of his supporters stormed Capitol Hill. We'll break down the full fallout and how it could impact investing in these names. Plus, Bitcoin breaking out to new all-time highs, a cryptocurrency briefly crossing $40,000. Coming up, you'll hear from one of the most high-profile investors in the space. Anthony Papliano will join us exclusively. And we're all over the after-hours action. Shares of Micron, the chipmaker, just reporting results. We've got fresh commentary from the call straight ahead. But first, we start with another record day for the markets. The S&P, NASDAQ, and Dow all closing at new all-time highs. The NASDAQ, the big standout with a 2.5% gain. The VIX remaining in check. The 10-year yield at its highest level since late March. All of this playing out on Wall Street as this plays out in America. 40 criminal cases have been launched in the wake of yesterday's siege on the U.S. Capitol. Top advisors to the president, including Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao and former Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, resigning their posts. And the Democratic leaders of the House and Senate both calling for the president to step down immediately. So following one of the darkest days in American history, stocks at all-time highs. Is this more proof that this record rally is strong? Guy. 100%. 100%. I mean, proof positive. And I'm not pretending to be bullish because I'm anything but. But what I'll say is if on Tuesday night, Mel, and we play this game from time to time, you had said all the things that were going to take place yesterday and then said, given that guy, what do you think is going to happen? I would have said the Dow's down anywhere from 800 to 1,000 points. S&P, you know, 75 to 100 handles on the downside. Bonds are going to rally. Maybe the 10-year gets back to 80 basis points. Uh, maybe you see a relief rally in the dollar. Gold will rally. Uh, and the VIX will spike to 30. None of those things happened, which is remarkable. And I think it speaks to the fact that people will dismiss it and say, look, as horrible as it was, it really doesn't have impact on, on markets, on businesses, on the economy. OK, but I think what more speaks to the fact that the market is so addicted to uh, the hopes of stimulus, the Fed balance sheet growing, all those things mm-hmm. that is clearly impervious to any news that historically would be very bad for the stock market. If one was a believer in a, a, a pullback, a correction of some sort off of record highs, yesterday gave you every single reason, Karen, to trim your position. And while we did see a dip in the markets, it still held on to gains. The yield still stayed above 1%. I mean, all these things, just even during the session yesterday, as this was all unfolding, didn't really dent the markets too much. Well, it didn't. But remember, as crazy as yesterday was, we also had some certainty, which was what the Senate would look like. So even though I felt I actually thought there was a chance of a blue wave that wasn't being priced in and that the market would react to a blue wave by trading down initially and then up on the hopes of a greater stimulus an infrastructure bill. And so I think the market was sort of adjusting to that idea, greater stimulus, certainty an infrastructure bill. If you looked at some of those infrastructure stocks, they traded up very, very sharply. 
And I think Guy's right. It was just, you know, they were sort of dismissing the long-lasting effects of the, the horrible events of yesterday as something that, you know, is fleeting, as terrible as it was. Um, and then I, I think there was just money on the sidelines or some tax-selling people did at the end of last year mm. to... Um, I don't know, lock in some losses where there were and then putting more money to work. All that having been said, though, it was kind of surprising to see the second day as well. Right. So this is setting us up for a big down day. Who knows when, though? I can't predict it, but it'll happen. I mean, if you if you wanted to game out what could have happened yesterday in terms of what the market could have priced in, the worst case scenario was that what? Uh, I mean, we know that Joe Biden will be sworn in on January 20th. So no matter what happened between now, you know, in the next two weeks, less than, it's a very finite amount of time. So in a way, Dan, maybe maybe the markets were just sort of saying, you know what, we know what's going to, there is clarity even despite this chaos. Yeah, I think that is the point. I think uh, Karen and Guy kind of nailed it and you allude to it. I mean, we do have that clarity. I think the one issue um, or, or, or I guess the one negative would be that if Biden now with the uh, Democratic Senate said we're going to raise taxes right away. I mean, that's really the only thing um, that might have kind of spooked investors here. Um, I'll just say this, you know, it, it's been a very volatile week. We started off uh, Monday. I think the S&P was down almost 2%. We're obviously uh, about unchanged now on the year. It's four trading days in of the year, if you think Monday's lows were the lows for the year, then you haven't been doing this very long. This is not how this works. Even though it seems like a very Goldilocks situation here, these sorts of sell-offs will come very quickly. When you think about that September 2nd high up there at 3,600, well, now we're at 3,800. You know, we could be back there in one trading day. Um, that would be down about 5% or so. And let me just tell you this. I know we're going to talk about the Bitcoin and Tesla later. You know, there's a day where Bitcoin's going to be down probably 10 maybe $15,000 in one clip. What does that do? Um, we, that has proven to be very correlated to a lot of risk assets here, a lot of the same investors there. So I think there's a lot of pockets of over-exuberance right mm -hmm. here, and there's a lot of reasons to ignore them until they don't. We've had certainly um, stellar performances in this young year of, nine, of a 2021, Tim. Uh, Russell, for instance, up, what, 6% on the year so far? The KRE is up 11% for the year. Materials are up 6% uh, for the year. I mean, some extraordinary moves just in a few days. Well, and, and I, I, I have to take this back to, to 2020. The market's up almost 18% in 47 sessions. So let, let's, let's call this what it is. It makes almost the last 24 hours or 48 hours uh, extraordinary. And then adding in, we talk about markets as a, the, the market itself as a discounting mechanism. Like my view is, is when we start to really process uh, a tax hike, which will probably come, uh, I don't think it can come in 2021, especially when we're flooding the world with money and fiscal to overcome the headwinds in the economy. But, but, but to be clear, I've said this before, the multiplier effect from, from higher taxes uh, is, is significantly stronger than a one-off fiscal bill. So, so let's not get terribly excited about fiscal in, in the medium term. In the short term, that's all the market really cares about. Um, but when we start to hear about normalized earnings out for 2022, that's going to be another time to, to, to really be very careful about where we are in the market. But in the short term, uh, this, this rotation that does have, uh, I think, a fair amount to go as we, uh, we're going to talk about growth into value. We're going to talk about the reasons why the tech companies have headwinds. Uh, but I think a lot of this trade 
trade continues. And, and this is a broadening of the market that, frankly, a lot of people wanted to see. But, but we, we've, we've come from an extraordinary place to be where we are. And these are the moments when we've looked back, when we've had pullbacks. Half of it is about where you have come from. And, and, and the slope of this move higher is very, very steep. Um, so is the slope of the yield curve uh, and the climb in the in the ten year yield as it marches to one point one percent. We've talked about how it's a it's a tailwind for banks and that sort of trade guy. But how about being a headwind for tech? Tim mentioned tech. Could we also see increased regulation or increased taxes because of that blue wave, adding sort of to the pile of potential worries there? Yeah, and I do think you will. I, I, you know, I'm hard pressed to understand why it rallied in such a meaningful way today, given what you just mentioned about. The bond move. And, you know, I think, you know, people will correctly say to a point that this bond move is a good thing. But look at the speed with which we went from basically 90 basis points where we were stuck to where we are now. That's somewhat concerning. It's moving very quickly. And I've said a number of times, if you're playing at home, the line in the sand comes in the form of about 155 and a half in a TLT. And you see how quickly we traded through that level. So here we are. Uh, the bond market is moving I think at a certain point, the way I think the dollar going lower is bullish until it's not, I think the same thing with the bond move. And we're coming precariously close to those things. You know, yields going higher, dollar going lower. I understand why people would say, and I hate the term, that's Goldilocks. It ain't for much longer, in my opinion, Melissa. All right. Um, we got some breaking news here on Sarepta Therapeutics, the stock. Dramatic plunge in the after-hour session, down by 54% right now. Let's get to Meg Terrell. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, Sarepta, of course, is developing a gene therapy to treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy, this really devastating childhood disease. Uh, and they just reported the results of a much-anticipated clinical trial, and they were really mixed. Um, on one measure, they showed that they could improve the levels of an important protein, uh, important for muscle function. But on another measure of actually measuring the, the muscle function, um, they did not show a statistically significant benefit. And you are now seeing the shares off 53% on this news as it potentially jeopardizes the company's ability to seek accelerated approval later this year. Um, so a really heartbreaking biotech story here tonight for Sarepta Therapeutics. Um, Mel, back over to you. Is this a one-trick pony, Meg? I mean, in terms of their pipeline, is this the most promising product they've got, the most advanced product they've got? Well, they have drugs on the market or a drug on the market for Duchenne muscular mm -hmm. dystrophy, but it was an incredibly controversial drug and one that, you know, the benefits were not accepted by everybody. Um, and so this was the next one. This was thought to really have potential to really help kids with this disease. Um, and so it was there was a lot of hope behind it. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that this drug is done. It just might mean a delay for Sarepta in terms of what they need to prove to bring this to the FDA. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell, uh, it is not every day we see a stock fall in the after-hour session by more than half, Tim Seymour. And maybe this is why you guys say, go, go to IBB instead. Yeah, if you look at the 52-week kind of range on this stock, I think you're somewhere around about $78 or $80 where it is now uh, to 180 And so, you know, this is not for the faint of heart, especially when uh, whether it's one-trick pony or whether it's riding on, on decisions that ultimately then are going to be able to fund the rest of the business. This is the type of move you get. And it's why um, like, this is the deep end of the pool, for I think, for a lot of investors uh, and why, though, 
the biotech pharma uh, dynamics that are played out and thematically played out through ETFs like the IBB, where those companies are actually quite diversified, especially at the top of that, uh, that ETF, where you have five to kind of seven percent positions in companies with great balance sheets. Um, that's where I think most investors who are not in the deep end of the pool prefer to play. All right, let's move on and uh, get an earnings alert on Micron. That stock is higher in the after-hour session. Josh Lipton joins us now with all the details. Hey, Josh. So that is higher in the after-hours here, Melissa. Keep in mind, of course, the big run that this stock had heading into this print, up about 60% in the past three months alone. I did check in with Mitch Steves over to RBC. He covers the name. I want to Mitch's quick take here. He calls this a solid quarter. DRAM, or data center memory chips, outperforming. Q2 gross margin guidance better than expected at 31%. I asked Mitch why the, the buy rating here, bottom line, after such a big run. Mitch saying DRAM will be supply-constrained, leading to pricing increase. That's what he's telling his clients. On the call, CEO, CEO Sanjay Marotra, going through the end markets here, what does demand look like? The data center, he says, cloud AI, that's going to drive long-term growth. Made the case Micron is well positioned there. Having said that, he did note some enterprise market weakness in the quarter. No surprise, perhaps, given the weak economy. Mobile business, he pointed out, improving handset demand. Micron, he's arguing, well positioned to capitalize on that big 5G trend. PCs, the work-from-home trend intact, that is fueling strong demand. Autos bouncing back. Bottom line, give me some color for 2021. He says, DRAM, we have passed the bottom. The industry is in tight supply. Micron is going to continue to benefit from 5G. NAN growth, he says, challenging in the near term, but as the year progresses, that should lead to improving demand. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. Guy, Micron is in every single hot end market out there. Yeah, and it speaks to exactly this quarter. And it's interesting because I think it was middle of November. You know, I think you asked, how do you trade Micron here? And we said, look, you close above the February high, which I think was 59 or so before we crashed like everything else. You know, there's your catalyst. And you you stay long above that 59 level. And look, here we are now, I think, at $80 or so. And although, you know, you don't really talk about these names necessarily in valuation, I will mention it that given their earnings growth um, and given the fact that DRAM was not nearly as bad as the street anticipated, nor was NAND, there's a chance that this continues to go higher from here. So I understand it's had a huge run. Josh just alluded to that. But I think this, I think you still stay with Micron at these levels. Yeah, uh, Dan, it's all about pricing and DRAM. I mean, it's always sort of the, the rise and fall of all of these stocks has to do with how tight supply is out there. Yeah, I mean, that commentary sounds great. And I think the other thing that, you know, uh, we were talking about earlier in the week was expectations about Taiwan Semiconductor's CapEx and what that meant for um, a lot of these end markets and a lot of their customers. And that stock is already up. 11% 11% on the year. It makes new highs every day. It's been doing that for um, a couple of months. So when you see that sort of capex, I think somewhere on the tune of like 22 billion or something like that, you know, there's no reason to get off the train. I don't buy these stocks here like this. You know, we talked about Nvidia the other day. That was a stock that had been consolidating about nine or 10% below its September 2nd high. It made a big break today. So I think in the tech market in particular, when you're looking at some of these large cap tech stocks, I think take a run at some of these stocks that have consolidated some of their gains over the last couple of months, but I would just keep a very itchy trigger finger. I think there's going to be a really, really sharp down day in tech someday very soon to kind of shake out some weak hands here. All right. We're also tracking shares of Boeing for you. Phil LeBeau's got all the details on this story. Phil. 
Hey, Melissa, this is a finish to the case between the DOJ and Boeing. DOJ investigating the 737 MAX and specifically looking at what Boeing did or did not tell regulators as the MAX was going through the certification process. So as part of the agreement to end that criminal case today, Boeing enters a deferred prosecution agreement. It basically says, look, we're going to comply with certain uh, things that need to be done. And as part of that, three years down the road, if we meet all of those terms, then this agreement. agreement will then see the charges being dropped. The $2.5 billion is the monetary fine that goes with this. It's actually a settlement that Boeing will agree to pay. Some of that in actual criminal penalty, some of that going to the beneficiaries of 737 MAX victims, as well as MAX customers. The airlines, the lessers who uh, bought the MAX thinking that it was certified at a certain level, clearly Boeing is now saying that uh, there were things that were done that should not have been done. As part of this agreement, some people are saying, well, look, shouldn't there be somebody as part of an oversight committee from the DOJ who is assigned to look at Boeing in the future? That was not uh, part of the agreement. The DOJ saying the misconduct was neither pervasive across the organization nor undertaken by a large number of employees nor facilitated by senior management. So as a result, they did not say, look, we think that there should be a compliance oversight committee installed at Boeing, that they've taken a number of steps on their own. Within the last hour, Dave Calhoun, the CEO of Boeing, issuing an employee letter saying this is the reason why we entered this agreement. He wrote, I firmly believe that entering this resolution is the right thing for us to do, a step that uh, that appropriately acknowledges how we fell short of our values and expectations. As you take a look at shares of Boeing, we're going to show you all the way back to March 13th of 2019. And why are we going back to then? Because that's when the MAX was grounded by the FAA. After the second crash in early March, it was then grounded. It has re-entered service, just re-entering within the last week with Americans starting to fly it here in the United States. You'll see other airlines around the country and around the world starting to fly the MAX uh, more frequently in the weeks and months to come. But again, this is important, Melissa, because it ends the criminal probe relative to Boeing, the company, when it comes to the 737 MAX. There is no indication in this agreement with the DOJ that others will be charged, individuals who may have been uh, playing a role in the uh, deception of the MAX certification. Certainly that is always a possibility, but there's no indication that charges will be filed, at least through what we've seen from the DOJ at this point. Was this the biggest question mark in terms of an ongoing probe into Boeing, Phil? Yes. Yes. Okay. But, but, it, but the amount is not a surprise, Melissa. Long ago, when this first started and we knew that Mm -hmm. there was a grand jury looking into this and the DOJ was looking into this, almost everybody said the same thing. Ultimately, Boeing is likely to enter into a deferred prosecution agreement and likely a fine of, I don't know, one and a half to three billion dollars. People were throwing out those numbers. So two and a half billion dollars. I think that's the reason why you don't see the stock trading dramatically lower. This was largely expected to eventually happen. Mm -hmm. And now Boeing has entered this agreement with the DOJ. All right. Phil, thanks. Phil Abo in Chicago for us. Karen, you mentioned the markets like certainty. Same thing for Boeing investors. This is another um, yes. page turned in, in the saga. Right. And I think Calhoun definitely did the right thing. And um, it doesn't fall on him and uh, doing the right thing. I also wonder, they may have been reserved for this and they may also have some insurance to cover, maybe not anything criminally related, but uh, settlements to... Um, the families. Uh, so I think this is this is just good news. Clarity, certainty, 
Time to move on. All right. Coming up, taking action, social media companies cracking down and blocking President Trump from posting to his accounts. We'll break down the fallout straight ahead. Plus, Alibaba sitting out today's tech rally. The big headline that pressured this stock, the details, when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Alibaba ending the day in the red. Reports the White House could add the company to a U.S. blacklist that would ban American investors from trading the stock. The news crossed yesterday afternoon as the capital was under siege. A trade lower in Hong Kong and in today's session, as you see there, uh, didn't take part in that tech rally that we saw. So, Tim, you're an investor in this name. You have been in the past, at least. How do you interpret yep. this? Because that would be a major blow, a major blow if this uh, actually happened. Yeah, this is a very different headline than worrying about Alipay in the United States. And, and so this is a situation where, thank goodness, there's liquidity for the stock in Hong Kong and, and, and locally now. In fact, that added liquidity was part of the outperformance and part of the uh, really the momentum behind the stock to get it to the 320 levels. But this would be a, a very big moment and, and one that I, I think would be uh, certainly uh, come with, with a lot of challenges on both sides. Um, so I, I have to follow this news. I think right now there are three or four headwinds for the company, uh, the least of which is the, the ant uh, kind of you know, financial valuation dynamics, which I think we've talked about. Karen pointed this out as well, well in the price. And in fact, maybe net was never in the price. Uh, but, but look, I worry a lot about Big Brother. I worry a lot more what's going on in China, frankly, than I do over here. But the liquidity dynamics for this stock, if this was two years ago, this would have been uh, devastating for the stock. I think there's more liquidity for this name in Hong Kong than there is over here now. Knowing, Karen, that, that every day that passes, the window closes for that EO, the executive order, to ultimately be signed, are you hopeful that maybe under a Biden administration something um, so draconian would not happen? More than hopeful. I, I expect that that will, <laughs> that that will be the case. So, as you know, we were talking earlier about uncertainty. This is a stock that has all kinds of uncertainties surrounding it. Like Tim talked about Ant, which I don't even think is so much uh, uh, relevant anymore because of how much it's come down. But uncertainty about Jack Ma and what is good. Not that he's missing. That's not what I'm saying about, um, about his sort of independence and what will the government do to crack down. All that doesn't add up to good things when you have that much uncertainty. However, I really do like the business. I like the valuation. I was surprised. The stock was actually 220 at one point today and ended up trading up to 231. I think it was maybe their Citigroup came out with a buy recommendation. They like their cloud business. They think the valuation is attractive here. I agree with all of that. So I'm hanging on as, as wild and uh, a ride as it's been. And it certainly isn't, isn't over. But this is a business I want to own for the long term. Yeah. Guy, quickly, would you be um, sticking with this one? Yeah, for a trade, absolutely. We mm -hmm. talked about it, I think, December 23rd or Christmas Eve when you know, it had a huge volume day. I think it traded down to 211. You flushed a lot of people out. We made note the fact that it traded you know, three or four times normal volume, and it gave you something to trade against. I stay with it. And just to quickly play devil's advocate to Karen's more than hopeful, which I totally get, by the way. You know, then the other side of that coin is you wonder if a Biden administration is going to have to sort of come down hard on China, given some of the headlines we've seen about him and his family over the last couple of months. And I just throw that out there just to start a conversation, but it's something to keep in mind. All right, coming up, the ultimate would you rather. Bitcoin breaking out to record highs as gold gets left in the dust. We'll break down what is behind the big disconnect with one of the most high-profile names in the crypto space. Anthony Pompliano will join us when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin soaring to new record highs today. The cryptocurrency cracking the $40,000 mark for the first time in history before pulling back. And check this out. In the last month, Bitcoin has doubled while gold has been left in the dust. Let's talk more about this big break. Joining us now is Morgan Creek Digital Assets founder Anthony Pompliano. Anthony, Happy New Year. Always great to speak with you. Absolutely. Happy New Year to you, too. Um, you know, J.P. Morgan came out with a note uh, just the other day. One hundred forty-six thousand was the price target on Bitcoin, and one of their major um, theses in that note was that it would be a replacement for gold. And I'm just curious because it seems like all of the other bullish reasons behind Bitcoin have disappeared, and now it's primarily the store of value. Can it continue at the pace that you think it should go with just that one thesis? Yeah, I think, look, one of the key pieces here is why is J.P. Morgan so conservative, right? If you really think about in the technology world, we talk about 10x improvements of products. Bitcoin is at least 10x better than gold in every way. Um, And so I think that if you just think of a Bitcoin product that is 2x better and market cap kind of follows that, that would put Bitcoin at a million dollars a coin, right? Just 2x gold's market cap. And the key piece here, when I say those numbers, they kind of shock people. But we have to remember that both gold and Bitcoin are sound money principles. Gold is the analog application of sound money principles. Bitcoin is the digital application of sound money principles. And there is not a single digital product that replaced an analog product, but yet is still smaller than those analog products. The digital product is always bigger. And so I think it's a foregone conclusion at this point that not only is uh, Bitcoin's market cap going to flip gold. It's just a question of how much bigger is it going to be? Is it going to be 2x bigger, 5x bigger, 10x bigger? I don't think we know. Uh, and the timeline is a question, but it's a foregone conclusion, in my opinion, that not only is uh, Bitcoin a 10x improvement on gold and the market cap is going to flip it at some point in the future. How does that $1 million price target, if you want to call it that, change? Because right now we're talking about the replacement for gold. In in the corporate world, it's also a replacement for cash these days because of what's going on with the U.S. dollar. So is that and, you know, would that be a kicker on top of that million dollar price target, which is already so jaw dropping? Yeah, I I mean, look, from where we are today, it's about a 20 X increase. Right. And uh, the, the other piece of this that I think is really important to understand is that every single corporation, both in the United States and outside the U.S., is going to put Bitcoin into their treasury. They're going to have to. We are watching central banks around the world stuff the economy with liquidity, and people are running around saying, how do I protect the purchasing power? And so gold has served uh, that purpose in some treasuries, but I think Bitcoin uh, is just being underestimated. The fact that every single company uh, that's publicly traded or private is going to end up putting Bitcoin in that treasury, that is a wall of demand that people just aren't accounting for. And so as we're seeing today, just Wall Street institutions are showing up yet. Corporations really haven't shown up yet, and Bitcoiners don't want to sell their Bitcoin. And so you have this imbalance between supply and demand, and it's led to this rapid price increase because that's the only way you can accommodate everyone. The Wall Street institutions have to keep bidding higher and higher in order to solicit uh, Bitcoiners to sell that Bitcoin. When the corporations show up, they're going to have to bid it higher and higher. Now, it's important to also talk about there will be volatility along the way. There will be 20, 30 percent drops. Sometimes they'll be very rapid. Sometimes they may be prolonged. But over a long period of time, I think that saying that Bitcoin will be equivalent to gold's market cap is just being overly conservative. And it's likely to eclipse it you know, sometime in the 2020s. So before 2030, we'll see that happen. Hey, Anthony, um, it's Dan. And that that all makes perfect sense to me. Um, I just have a question about that volatility. If we think about a lot of our viewers are stock market investors, and they're obviously very interested in the price action in Bitcoin, and, and you make a very good case for it. 
But the last two sell-offs in the stock market, we've seen Bitcoin really get hammered. Back in late 2018, Bitcoin got cut in half from much lower levels, I think around 6,000. And then when we sold off this year, about 35% in the S&P 500, Bitcoin peaked to trough at a 62% decline. Now, granted, it's far, far higher here. Do you expect that sort of volatility and correlation to the equity markets going forward? Yeah, so I think we've got to separate out. Over long periods of time, Bitcoin is a uh, non-correlated asymmetric asset. In very short periods of time, so March of 2020 was a great example. During a liquidity crisis, every asset sold off. Gold sold off, equity sold off, Bitcoin sold off. And so I definitely think that there can be levels of correlation uh, in short periods of time where there's liquidity crisis or there's high degrees of uncertainty. But over a long period of time, Bitcoin has proven to be not only non-correlated, but also the fastest horse or the most asymmetric asset available. And so if you're an investor and you're looking to get out of dollars and looking for where to put your money and you don't have exposure to Bitcoin, I think you're making a mistake. How much you should put into Bitcoin, that's, you know, each person is different, each organization, but you've got to get off zero exposure. You've got to get exposure to this asset. And then you've got to have a long time preference. And I think that it'll turn out pretty well for you. Anthony, always great to speak with you. Hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, guys. All right, Anthony Pompliano. Uh, Karen, what'd you make of all of that? And, and what would you think of a company that you owned in your portfolio said, we're going to put part of our cash store, let's say it was Apple, into Bitcoin instead mm -hmm. of short-term investments or cash? What would you say? Uh, I, I would be a little bit surprised, but uh, how much of it? How much? 2%? 2%, let's say. That wouldn't change what? Yeah, 2%. Let's say 2%. Okay, so let's say 2%. That wouldn't really change the Apple story for me, right? Let's say I thought, wow, they're risking one out of that 2%. That's not, if you're, if you're in Apple because of a 1%, you know, you expect, so it wouldn't change the story for me. So I, I do believe that we could start seeing that. Obviously, we've just seen a little bit, right? We've seen Square. Um, but I think we will start to see that. The thing that Dan brought up today, that trading today was a little scary for me. 40,000 had hit, well, I don't know, 40,200 or so, and within minutes was, had a 36 handle. So I, I, you know, that to me sort of looks like a frothy short-term top, but I'm not gonna trade around it. I do a terrible job doing that. I'm just gonna hold it and let this thing play out. I think there's still more room to run. All right, coming up. Coca-Cola having a rough week as four big Wall Street banks slapped the beverage stock with a downgrade. We've got the details next. Plus, social media cracking down after the chaos on Capitol Hill yesterday. What it means for these stocks and the future of the industry. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Coke tumbling again today following its fourth downgrade in as many days. J.P. Morgan, the latest to remove its buy rating on the stock, joining Deutsche Bank, Guggenheim and RBC Capital Markets. Coke shares down nearly 9 percent this week alone. Guy, there are many reasons for these various downgrades, a tax dispute with the IRS. Also, um, the recovery may take a little longer. So it's a reopening trade, clearly, with its exposure to restaurants and live events, etc. Are you on board all these downgrades? The hits just keep on coming. I mean, you know, clearly the hope of a reopen trade for these for Coca-Cola sort of got shut down pretty quickly with what we've been seeing. And that was leg one. Leg two, obviously, this IRS problem, I think going back to 0809, uh, where there's potential three and a half, four billion dollars of taxes that they owe. And J.P. Morgan downgraded on the back of that. I'll say this in terms of valuation, uh, you're getting it here at a trough uh, multiple, especially compared to Pepsi. We've said for a long time that 
Pepsi is a better company and probably better stock, but at a certain point, Coke makes sense. And I'd stand up and say it might be right here. Um, I get it. The headwinds are out there. But you just wonder how much is now baked in. I think pretty much of it is at this point. Tim, you still in Coke? I am. I, I have to say, I've actually trimmed that position over the last couple months just because I think the higher rate environment is something that hurts the company. By the way, we, we were very sad. Remember that night where we talked about them discontinuing tab? I don't know if this has anything to do Is with it Is that a reason either. why you trimmed? Um, but, <laughs> I mean, no more tab? Well, <laughs> or... Uh, or, or why we are trimmed, Mel. Um, but look, the bottom line here is you've got a company that, that I think after a 9% pullback for a, a relatively low val company, I think Coke has proven itself over the last five years uh, that they've done a great job of reinvesting in their business. They've challenged their, their organizational structure. They're not afraid uh, to get themselves into the sexier part of the, the carbonated soft drink world or you know natural and, and vitamin drinks and energy water and whatnot. Uh, I think it's a very well-run company. And I think at $44, you load the boat. Um, and I think I would be adding to it there. Remember when you and Dan had this really like uh, deep discussion about fizzy wa- sugar water? What was the Dan that you called it? It's totally like fists out. Listen, I love fight. the product, Mel. I I, I think yeah. it's amazing. It, it it probably adds about like uh, you know ten percent to my my whole situation here for twenty <laughs> years of drinking this stuff. Listen, I, I'll just tell you this. I mean, th- this stock has filled in that entire gap from early November when we got the vaccine news. And when you have a pile on like this from four analysts, they're not generally right in herds like this. So I think as a fast money trade, because that's what we do here, Mel, um, I think you take it and bid it here and you play for a move back up towards 55 and a possible breakout if the recovery gets going at a pace where investors start looking for laggards. All right. Coming up, big tech blocks President Trump's social media accounts after yesterday's siege on Capitol Hill. The fallout straight ahead and later, Tesla shares on a tear. Can anything stop this rally? We will trade it much more fast in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Fresh fallout this hour following yesterday's siege on the U.S. Capitol, Twitter, Facebook and Snap, all blocking President Trump from posting to his accounts. Let's get to Julia Borson with the very latest on the story. Julia. Melissa, Facebook taking the unprecedented step of indefinitely blocking President Trump from posting at least through the inauguration. Mark Zuckerberg saying Facebook had allowed Trump to post because, quote, we believe that the public has a right to the broadest possible access to political speech, even controversial speech. But the current context is now fundamentally different, involving use of our platforms to incite violent insurrection against a democratically elected government. This comes after Facebook drew criticism for not quickly enough shutting down a group called Red State Secession that posted that its members should be prepared to use force. Snap, which stopped promoting Trump's account after he incited violence back in June, yesterday blocking that account indefinitely. Now, Twitter, for the first time, locked President Trump's account for three tweets that violated its policies on inciting violence and misinformation. 
Twitter confirmed that Trump did delete those tweets, which started a 12-hour clock before the account could be unfrozen. Twitter did warn, though, he would be permanently suspended if he continues to violate Twitter's policies. YouTube, which is under fire for spreading misinformation, has removed the president's videos and said it's going to suspend any channels posting new videos of voter fraud claims rather than giving those channels a warning. Melissa, one thing is for sure, these companies will continue to find themselves in the crosshairs, particularly for the role they may have played in yesterday's events. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson. For more on what this means for the social stocks, let's bring in Fast Money friend and Loop Ventures founder, Gene Munster. Gene, always great to get your thoughts. Um, Twitter was, hi, Twitter was down almost 2% today. Uh, why do you think that that was? It should be. I think at the end of the day, the same truths are still in place here is that investors are slowly piecing this together that these platforms are toxic we've known that for a long time they're also addictive and i think that that plays into why they keep uh, growing their base and their usership but specifically around twitter i think some of the actions that they've taken surprised investors the stock has had a bigger move more recently and i think i just anchor continue to anchor the this this topic more broadly whether uh facebook was up two percent today or if it ended up being down two percent it doesn't change the big picture here. And the big picture is pretty straightforward, is that consumers are going to continue to aggressively engage in these platforms. The reach is unprecedented. Their ad business is going to be, uh, they're going to be wonderful ad businesses. But unfortunately for Twitter, for Facebook, is that their multiples are going to be progressively pressured. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that investors are going to get tired of this. This is deja vu. I think uh, this topic comes up every three months. And eventually, uh, because of the, the topic reoccurring, it is ultimately begging a much bigger question for all investors around these social companies. What are they doing that's, transform that's transformative? And I think if you look at Facebook and uh, look at Twitter, they really haven't done anything. I can go more into it. And I think that that ultimately is going to weigh on the multiple, whether it hit Twitter today or whether it will hit Facebook tomorrow doesn't change the big picture is that these companies' multiples are going to be under pressure in the years to come. I'm curious, Gina, if you think these platforms, as evidenced yesterday in the actions they took while the events were unfolding in the nation's capital, if they were playing the role of publisher already, and what more could be legislated to make them take a harder uh, stance earlier than what they did yesterday as things were, were progressing? It's the catch-22 that you and the traders have outlined over many months. Is they really? Uh, this is the problem. Is you know what more could have they done? Uh, the more you do, the more I think pushback you get from people who feel there's censorship. This gets back to the arbitrator of truth question, catch-22. If they regulate it, then uh, they become a publisher. If they become a publisher, then there's uh, new regulations that come on. And I think I just it's very straightforward in my mind is that uh, social uh, structurally it's broken. And uh, that doesn't mean that these companies can't grow their ad businesses. But I don't think that there's a lot to do. And maybe just to actually bring it into uh, a forward thought is that what that means is we're going to continue to be in uh, th these deja vu moments around these platforms for a long time. And what I suspect is that eventually they're going to get more regulation and they'll have better rules. They'll take a couple years to get that clarity to it. And if people don't feel their voices are being heard, they will go to smaller platforms. This tribalism is going to fracture into smaller platforms. Those platforms will grow and then they'll be padded down with more regulation. And I think it's just going to be whack-a-mole.
Gene, Facebook's going to report on, I think, January 27th. I'm certain it's going to be a ridiculous quarter. Again, ridiculous in a good way, but something we've talked about, and I think it bears repeating now. I've thought, correctly or incorrectly, that the existential risk here is falling under the auspices of ESG investing. How, uh, how much more relevant is that now, given what's happened over the last month or so? Uh, you know, it's taken a step forward. I think it is definitely more relevant. I think that that's part of the reason why you have seen uh, companies like Facebook uh, underperform uh, the NASDAQ in the past year. And so it's just going to become a bigger topic. And, of course, that weighs on the multiple, too. We're, we are going to hear more about that. Every time this topic comes up, uh, socially relevant investing is going to come up as well. And so I, th- I see that as a, a structural headwind to, to, to Facebook and to Twitter. Gene, thank you. Good to see Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster at Loop Ventures. Dan Nathan, what did you make of, of Twitter's price action, particularly relative to the other companies? Yeah, I think it's going lower. And, and I think that Gene hit on a couple things. And, you know, he said, what did they do? You know, in late um, October, early November, when the stock was down 20 percent from, uh, you know, in one day after their Q4, uh, excuse me, Q3 earnings, um, because you know, the company is not innovating and they weren't growing their daily active users. And they did see a rebound in ad growth, but they had a massive pull forward in Q2. They had 20 million users that they added. So if you tell me if they kick Trump off and after the inauguration, all the the MAGA people leave, are they going to be able to add users again? Are they going to be able to monetize um, the users that they have at a rate that justifies the valuation? And and I guess the last point I would just make on that is like, this is going to be a very toxic situation. It's bipartisan here. Um, So, you know, Jack Dorsey and the crew there, they had a very, very um, tough decision here. Um, But, you know, I pulled the plug on this one. I I just don't think um, there's a clear path for them forward to justify the valuation. The last point is this is not a hyper growth company. They've grown their sales on average over the last five years, probably low teens or so. Um, So the the hyper growth period for this company is over and they don't have more than 200 million uh, monthly active users here daily, whatever, however they uh, measure them anymore. So, I mean, this thing is kind of toast to me. All right. Coming up, plus the one, the one and a half billion dollar investment that turned into a nearly five billion dollar gain for one stock. We'll tell you what it is. And later, Elon Musk just took the lead in another race against Jeff Bezos. We'll tell you about the milestone he just achieved when we come right back. Welcome back. Shares of Plug Power rallying 35% after the company scored a $1.5 billion investment from South Korea. And take a look at our Kramer cam. There is Jim sitting down with the Plug Power CEO. So you'll want to be sure to catch that exclusive interview coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. And let's get back to today's record rally on Wall Street. Mike Co is with us. Uh, Mike, you spotted some interesting activity in the VIX. What would you see? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, yesterday we saw initially that the VIX was declining. If we take a look at this two-day chart here, we can see that from a relatively elevated level, it came in quite a lot through the day. And then, of course, as the events in D.C. unfolded, we saw a very sharp spike, more than four points in the VIX, almost instantaneously. And to put things in perspective, typically the VIX will drop by about one point when the S&P rallies by about one percent. So when you see a four-point move in the VIX in such a short time frame, that's fairly notable. But by the end of the day, some of that gave back. And as you take a look, actually, at the VIX term structure, what we can see is that not only is it lower than it was where it closed uh, yesterday, but it's actually significantly lower than it was even a week ago. 
And bearing out some of this sort of bullish sentiment that we're seeing is the fact that the put call ratio was just about 0.5. What that means is twice as many calls as puts were trading. One of the areas that we saw that activity was in SPY. The most active options there were these weekly 380 calls. Well over 100,000 of those were trading for just under a dollar. Buyers of those calls were expecting the rally that we've been seeing this week to continue through the close of business tomorrow. Mm. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe. And for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. Yeah, we're back after a few weeks on hiatus. Tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we've got the final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. We haven't talked about banks yet today, and although it's been another big run, you don't need to buy it tomorrow. But Citibank, with not only the interest rate and the yield curve expansion, but uh, I think the operational levers they have to whatever growth is out there, Citibank. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I think Tim's right and Coke back up the truck at 46, but I think you can start picking at it here for a move back up above 50. Dan liking the sugar water. Karen. Yeah, liking a financial as well. Morgan Stanley, I think, remember when they did that E-Trade deal? Well, how great is that now? So, and I like the way they've been changing their business, and it's firing on all cylinders. So Morgan Stanley right here. Guy Dami. Great trade by the Mets, right? Mel getting Lindor there. you got to be yeah, thrilled. Yeah, Francisco Lindor, right? Yes. Yes, see, I knew that. That's Nobody right. told I mean, me in my I ear. I'm speechless. <laughs> you have a trade? <laughs> AMD. AMD. See you tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money starts right now. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.